plenty of... Okay, let's uh, continue with our study of Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. And uh, I want to obviously do some review. Uh, as we saw last week, as you come to this passage, that uh, uh, the, Jesus crystallizes the choice for everyone. Uh, he gives two gates, the wide and the small, two ways, the broad and the narrow, two destinations, life and destruction, and two kinds of travelers, the few and the many. Uh, and we saw the first contrast in verse 13. It's two gates. He, began by say, he begins by saying, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. So there's a narrow gate and a wide gate there. And the first thing to notice is that we said you must enter. Uh, the verb there is an imperative. It demands action right now. Do it now, right now. You must do this. It's not an option. It's a command, an absolute command. And so Jesus says, enter this narrow gate. Stop looking for an easy way into the kingdom. If you're going to be in my kingdom, you've got to come on my terms. And he demanded immediate action. It's an absolute command without an alternative. And uh, you know, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a very narrow prescription, isn't it? Uh, we proclaim the narrow way because it's God's way and God's only way for men to find salvation and eternal life. We proclaim a narrow gospel because Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. So we And we proclaim a narrow gospel because Acts 4.12 tells us that there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. He's the only one, no other name. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's that narrow. Uh, it's that prescribed. There are no alternatives. You must enter by an act of the will, an act of faith. Uh, you have to enter on God's terms through Christ, through God's prescribed gate, and Christ is that gate. Uh, and when you enter that narrow gate, you must enter alone. It's a very narrow gate. Jesus is talking about a gate through which people can pass one at a time. The best expression of this in a contemporary terms, we said, is a turnstile. Uh, you don't come to the kingdom of Christ in groups. There are no groups going through the turnstile. You go through all alone. Salvation is individualized. Uh, you come in by an individual act of faith. And you. we also pointed out that you also enter with great difficulty. Uh, and we saw that at the end of verse 14 in regard to the narrow gate and the narrow way. It says, and there are few who find it. Uh, Jeremiah quoted God as saying, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There, there are few that find it implies that you've got to look for it. You have to search for it. Uh, in Luke 13, verse 24, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And that word strive there is this Greek word agonizomai, uh, from which we get our word agonize. Um, in other words, Jesus is saying it's an agonizing effort. It's warfare. There is a fervency that is demanded, a striving with difficulty to enter at the narrow gate. And there are many as opposed to the few who will seek to enter in but won't be able. Uh, you see, the kingdom of God is for those who seek for it with all their hearts. It's for those who strive, who agonize to enter it. 
whose hearts are shattered over their sinfulness, who mourn in meekness, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and being unsatisfied, long for God to change their life. It's not for people who come along and simply see Jesus as the way out of their problems and their circumstances and want him, but without any submission to his authority to run their lives and without any alteration of their behavior and lifestyle. William Hendrickson writes, In order to enter by the narrow gate, one must strip himself of many things, such as a consuming desire for earthly goods, an unforgiving spirit, selfishness, and especially self-righteousness. The narrow gate is there, the gate of self-denial and obedience. Uh, another thing the narrow gate demands is repentance. You can't come through unless your heart is repentant over sin, turning from sin to serve the living God. You don't say, well, I'll receive Christ, but I'm not willing to give up my favorite pet sin over here. Uh, that's not repenting of your sin. That's not genuine salvation. Uh, the way of repentance is turning from our own way and our own righteousness to God's way and God's righteousness. Uh, the repentant life will be a changed life. The primary message of John's first epistle is that the truly redeemed life will manifest itself in a transformed life. Uh, the repentant life will be a changed life. Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Spiritual fruit bearing, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life, is the evidence of genuine salvation. You see, salvation is not addition. It is transformation. Um, and by way of contrast, we saw that there's this wide gate. Uh, the wide gate is so broad, everybody can get through it together. You don't come in, have to come in alone. The whole gang's coming with you. Uh, they joined your religion, your denomination, your church. They observe your list of rules and rights and regulations. And so they all get through the gate together. There's nothing individual about it. Uh, Self-denial is not a requirement. In fact, you can bring your sin, your immorality, your lack of repentance, your lack of commitment to Christ. You can just join in. And so those two gates are there, and they lead to two different ways, and that's the next point. Uh, in verse 13, the wide gate leads to the broad way, and the, verse 14, the small narrow gate leads to the tight, constricted, hard way. Uh, the broad way is the way of the ungodly, and the narrow way is the way of the godly. The broad way, from a human perspective, is the road everyone wants to be on. Uh, most everyone is on this highway. It's big and broad and wide. Plenty of room for everyone. There's no dangerous curves, no precipice you might go over. Plenty of signs telling you you're on the road to heaven. You can go at your own pace. Uh, it's easy, attractive, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, self-oriented. There are few rules, few restrictions, few requirements. There's room for diverse theology. Uh, there's no need for an attitude like the Beatitudes. Uh, God's word is praised, but it is not studied, and his standards are admired, but not followed. And sadly, many people in our world recognize that they're on this broad highway to hell, but they don't care. They would rather be on that road because the narrow road is so hard. Uh, and we talked about in verse 14 where Jesus mentions that it's narrow. And I pointed out that the Greek word there, this translated Narrow is actually means to squeeze, to press upon, to constrict, to confine. It's not just a narrow way. The idea here is this way. It's constricted and confining, squeezing in on you. It's not an easy uh, way to take. It's very much like a narrow path 
on the edge of a precipice. Uh, and it's, but it's hemmed in on both sides by the discipline of the chastening hand of God. You say, well, if it's, if it, that, if it's such a hard, narrow, confined way, why would anybody want to choose that way? Because we not only have a Savior, we have a burden bearer who uh, takes all the hardness and all the narrowness and all the restrictions and bears them himself. Uh, but when someone thinks he or she wants to get on that way, they have to take stock of what they're asking for. Jesus said that you need to be willing to, if necessary, to hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, even your own children if need be. In other words, if you're going to be Christ's disciple, you have to be willing to give up every other relationship. Uh, you must love him so much that it's as though you hate everyone else, even those who are closest to you, and then you must be willing to die for him. So Jesus really drew a hard line, didn't he? Uh, he even said in John 15 that those who claim to be his disciples had better consider persecution. Uh, you don't walk on this narrow way with your bare feet. It's, it isn't a luscious meadow. The, the road is, is hard and rocky. You declare war on Satan when you start, and Satan declares war on you. Uh, you say, well, that sounds awful. Well, no, because as we said, all the hardness is picked up by Christ and the way becomes a way of beauty. Uh, so that's what we saw last week, the two gates and the two ways, and we stopped there. But there's also then the two destinations. Both the broad and the narrow ways point to the good life, to salvation, heaven, God, and blessing. But the truth is that only the narrow way actually leads to those things. Uh, there's not an arrow on the broad way that says this is the way to hell. Uh, but that's where it leads. Uh, you see, all the world's religion, other religions other than the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are false religions of human achievement. They're all centered on what the rules, on what rules you keep and the rites and the rituals you do in order to gain merit with whatever God it is that they worship. Uh, only genuine Christianity says you can't do it on your own, uh, that your salvation is entirely a work of divine accomplishment. It says that your salvation was accomplished by the death and resurrection of his sinless son who paid the price for your sin debt, took the punishment that you deserved, and then conquered death by his resurrection, thereby assuring those who trust in him that he will grant them eternal life with him in heaven. So the choice is salvation by human achievement or by divine accomplishment. Only those, uh, only one of those actually works, and that is salvation by divine accomplishment. All other religions are religions of human achievement that lead, as Jesus said, to destruction. That word destruction there, understand that it does not refer to extinction or annihilation, but to total ruin and loss. Uh, Jesus made it clear in many other places that those who die and go to hell are not simply incinerated or annihilated, uh, as some have taught. In, in Matthew 18, 18, he referred to those who will be cast into the eternal fire. Uh, in Matthew 25, he's speaking of the final judgment uh, after he returns in his glory. And in verse 41, it says, 
Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. See, hell was prepared for as eternal punishment for Satan and his demons, but those who reject Christ will also be sent there. Uh, in verse 46 of the same chapter, he wraps up his teaching by saying, These, that is unbelievers, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.9 refers to it as eternal destruction. Jude 7 calls it the punishment of eternal fire. So scripture does not give any indication that people who reject Christ and go to hell are only punished for a period of time and are then annihilated. Uh, their punishment is eternal. Now, why? Why is that the case? After all, if you think about it from our human perspective, it seems so wrong to punish someone eternally with agonizing torment when they only rejected him for the time they were alive here on earth. Uh, even if they live for 90 to 100 years, there's, that's nothing compared to eternity. So why is hell eternal punishment? Well, let me explain. The reason is because the punishment is not based on the amount of sin one committed or how long they lived, but rather on the value and worth of the one against whom they sinned. Their sin was against an infinitely holy and righteous God, and thus only an infinite punishment matches his infinite worth. It is impossible for someone to satisfactorily pay for their sins against one who was infinitely perfect and holy by simply being punished for a set number of years. Only eternal punishment matches the value of the one who they have offended. Think about it. It's the same for heaven. No one will be who will be in heaven deserves to be there, right? If God only let us go to heaven for the number of years we were true believers, some people would only be in heaven for moments, while others might be there for a few decades. But our eternal reward in heaven is not based on our worthiness but on the worthiness of the one who paid the price for our sin. So just as those in hell are punished eternally for sinning against an infinitely holy God, so too those in heaven are rewarded with eternal life because they trusted in an infinitely holy God embodied in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So whether we're talking about those in heaven or those in hell, the length of life for those in heaven and the length of punishment for those in hell is based entirely on the infinite value and worth of God who they either trusted or rejected. Uh, now, I know that's hard theology for those who have had a dear loved one die without Christ. I understand that. But remember, in Genesis 18:25, Abraham asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Yes, he will. Uh, and only he knows the heart of those who have died. I'm not saying that you ought to have some kind of false 
hope that your loved one is in heaven, but I am saying that only he knows those who are truly his, and you need to trust the heart of God to do that which is just and right. And if they are in hell, they did not go there because God was unjust in not electing them to salvation. Remember, none of us deserve to be chosen. God would be absolutely just and righteous if he consigned all of us to eternal hell for our sinful rebellion against him. But God, in his, for his own good pleasure, chose some. Why he chose any at all is the real question. Uh, I know there's nothing in me that warranted him choosing me, but he did, and for that I thank and praise his name. Uh, God is just in all he does. That's, that's very hard theology to accept in regard to our unsaved family members. But we must rest in the infinitely loving heart of God for all whom he has chosen to be his children and trust that what he has done in regard to everyone else is absolutely just and right. Now, since we've been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool for a couple of minutes there, let me pause and ask, Does are there any questions or comments at this point? Yes, Richard. Well, I've reconciled this for myself. I'd be curious about how you would reconcile uh, Matthew uh, eleven thirty. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah, I covered that last week. You did? Well, I said that despite all the hard road, Jesus becomes our burden bearer who takes that load, and he's the one who said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Okay. Okay, yes. I've heard it said that it's made easier on the uh, those that are rebellious, and even when they go to hell, they're still in rebellion. Yes, yes. So it's not just a matter of just easy justice from God. It's not easy, but... They're still, they're still rebels. They're still, they, they will not be sitting in hell going, well, you know, I deserve this. They will be in heaven still shaking their fist in anger at God for doing, for punishing them in that way. So, and we would too. And we would too if we were there. Yes. Is hell a literal burning like we think or is it something else? <laughs> I'll give you my deepest Theological answer. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, we, we, it talks about burning, you know, I'm, I'm suffering in this torment, in this fire, and all these other things. Um, and so we have visual images in our mind of that, but what it is, and also, it's also called darkness. Well, all fire that we know of creates light. So, but this is somehow a burning fire of some kind that's dark. So that's why I go, I don't know. <laughs> well, we come from a background, or I do, that believes in a literal. And then as oh, I, I believe in literal hell. Then, oh, I do too, but I mean a literal fire. Oh. But then as I started studying, I saw different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And that's why even, you know, some, some great theologians, even one as great as John Stott, who I love John Stott's commentaries. He's a, he was a fab, but in his later years, he just couldn't fathom the idea of an eternal hell and he changed to annihilation in his views. Uh, but um, uh, no, it's, you know, as, and, and the argument that I presented to you, you know who first pres uh, articulated that the best? Jonathan Edwards. So it took all the way until the 17th century <laughs> before somebody articulated it really well. So, okay. Well, two gates, two ways, two destinations, and finally we come to two groups. It says in verse 13, there are many who enter through the wide gate and travel the broad way to destruction. And verse 14 says, there are few who find the small gate and the narrow way. Most people are on the road of human achievement. Have you ever thought about how Revelation tells us that there will be an innumerable, an, an innumerable number of people in heaven, and yet there will be far more people in hell than in heaven. Uh, God's children are always only a remnant of all the people on the earth. If you go back to the Old Testament, you find that God's chosen people, Israel, was small among the nations. God has chosen only a few. And it has always been the pattern. There's always been a remnant of believing people. There are, there are thousands, there were thousands who followed Jesus during his earthly life. But after his ascension, how many true disciples do we read about? Five or six hundred. Uh, in Romans 9, 27, Paul is explaining the doctrine of God's sovereign election. And he quotes Isaiah 10, 22 saying, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Uh, God has chosen only a few who find the small gate and narrow, difficult, constricted way. Uh, there will be one time in redemptive history that seems to be unique in terms of God calling a massive number of people to salvation and faith in Christ, and that's during the tribulation. Uh, during that seven-year period, those who remain of the nation of Israel will all turn to Jesus as their Messiah, and there will be an innumerable number of Gentiles who also are redeemed. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 tells us, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And one of the 24 elders who are representatives of the church in heaven explains to John in verse 14 that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they are known as the tribulation saints, those who were martyred for their faith uh, during the tribulation as the Antichrist unleashes every effort to wipe them out. And yet during that time, God will call out an innumerable number of people to faith in Jesus. Uh, 
there may be a unique kind of evangelism response in the tribulation that is going to bring a great mass of the world's population to respond to Christ. During that time, Revelation 7 tells us that God is going to seal 144,000 Jews who will be evangelists going forth to spread the gospel. In Revelation 11, it says God will send two witnesses as his official representatives to prophesy and perform great miracles of judgment to a Christ-rejecting world. And in Revelation 14, 6, it says that there will be an angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he will say with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Uh, so this angel is going to be flying in the skies above the earth proclaiming the gospel. So it seems that during the tribulation, despite the fact that most of the world will continue to reject the true Christ and, and will choose to follow the Antichrist, there will be a special drawing in of people to saving faith in Jesus, despite the fact that it will result in their martyrdom. Uh, but for the present time and present age, there's only a few being called. Uh, in Luke 12, 32, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, do not be afraid, little flock. And the word little is mikros, uh, from which we get our prefix micro, meaning something small. Uh, it's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 13, 32 of the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. It's always been a little flock. Uh, it's always been a few who seek with all their hearts and who agonize uh, in the power of God, knowing their own human inability to enter because they're willing to pay the price and count the cost. In fact, in Matthew 22:14, Jesus put it this way, many are called, but how many are chosen? Few are chosen. Don't be like the man I knew when I was growing up. He was the father of one of my best friends at church. And he tried to blame God for his unbelief by saying that since he didn't believe, it was obvious that he was not one of the elect, so it really wasn't his fault that he didn't believe. Uh, listen, every person who will come to Christ can come to Christ. Uh, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, John 6, 37. Uh, and then he says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 40. Uh, no one can lay their refusal to believe at the doorway of heaven and say, it's not my fault. It's your fault, God. Uh, listen, the gate is not so small and the path so narrow that it can't accommodate more people going through that narrow gate. Uh, there's no limit on the number who can go through if they will go through in God's way in repentance for their sins, trusting Jesus Christ to save them. Uh, nor is the number few because heavenly space is limited. Uh, God's grace is boundless and heaven's dwellings are limitless. Uh, nor is the number few because God desires that most people perish. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is, not, is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But it's so easy to choose the broad way. It's such an easy way to go. You just go with a crowd and you just add Jesus to it and feel religious and go to church and 
belong to some kind of religious system that tells you that's the way to go. You never have to deny yourself, but you end up in the ultimate disaster. Let's go back one more time to Luke 13. And I want to point out one more point for you there. Luke 13. We already saw that in verse 24, Jesus says, strive or agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now look at what he says next. Verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. In other words, someone might say, we've taken communion. We attended church. We fellowshiped. Verse 27. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. These are not non-religious people that he's talking to about, uh, he's talking about here. These are religious people who thought they were on the right road, but it was not the right road. I tell you, I can't think of a more horrible scene than people under the illusion that they are saved only to find the door shut in their face. Going back to Matthew 7, Jesus says that there are many who enter through the wide gate and travel the broad road. And then drop down to verse 22 and we meet the many once more. It's on judgment day. And Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What a shock for them. There are many on the Broadway who are going to find out that that wasn't the road to heaven. The door will be shut in their faces forever. Listen, the way is narrow. But I'm happy to announce that it's wide enough to take in the chief of sinners. Uh, and you've got to come alone. You can't escape the choice. It's an utterly inevitable choice. To make no choice is to make a choice, and everyone faces that choice. In his commentary on Matthew, John MacArthur quotes a letter written that was written to the Melbourne Daily Paper after the Billy Graham crusade in Australia many years ago. This is what the man who wrote the letter said. I'm reading his letter. After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartedly sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, though repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. End quote. And he signed his name, and that's the choice everyone makes. You either invent a nice little religion that fits you, or you take the truth of God and accept it. That's the choice you make. 
One gives life, the other death. And that's it. So that brings us to the end of verses 13 and 14. Any other comments or questions? Well, let's read and we'll start and we will nowhere get near to the end of verses 15 through 20. Look at this. Let's read it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear bad, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. After giving the invitation to enter by the narrow way, to come to God the only way he's provided, Jesus now warns that not everyone who claims to belong to God and speak for him actually does so. When we stand at the crossroads of decision, we must remember that the true way to God is narrow and that is the false way is broad, that the true way is difficult and demanding and the false way is easy and permissive. The true way has relatively few traveling on it. The false way has multitudes. So the only permissible response to the Sermon on the Mount is to make this decision, to either go through the narrow gate onto the narrow way that leads to life or to go through the wide gate that... Uh, onto the wide way that leads to destruction. And as we said, those are the only two alternatives there are. Uh, you either have the religion or the divine accomplishment where you recognize your own sinfulness and accept what Christ has done, or you have the religion of human achievement where you believe you're good enough. Uh, through, the, through the narrow gate, you go on the merits of Jesus Christ. As we saw before, it's like going through this narrow turnstile with no baggage which means you can't carry your sin and your self-righteousness. You go through alone, you go through naked, you go through with great difficulty, agonizing to enter that gate with in repentance of your sin. On the other hand, if you choose the wide gate, you take your sin, your selfishness, your self-will, your self-righteousness, anything you like, because it's a wide gate, a wide gate that's easily entered, easily traveled, and you make a choice, and everyone makes that choice. Uh, so... As Jesus portrayed this Broadway all through the sermon, inevitably, inevitably his portrayal was that the Broadway didn't make it. They had the wrong view of self, the wrong view of the world, the wrong view of the Word of God, the wrong view of morality, the wrong view of all their religious practices, uh, including fasting, praying, and giving. They had the wrong view of money and possessions, the wrong view of other people. And so Jesus is showing them that going the way of self-righteousness that says, I can do it by myself, I'm good enough on my own, I'm religious enough myself, I don't need a sacrifice, I, I don't have to recognize my sin, I don't have to be a beggar in spirit, mourning over my sin and hungering for righteousness. He's just been showing them that such a way, any other way, is going to come up short. You know, you're going to have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, a level of righteousness that you don't have and can never achieve. And that's the narrow way. And so we have this, this close, confired, uh, constricted way. We have to make a choice. And, and so uh, when you do that, you run into people who say, well, Christians are very narrow-minded. Um, you know, that's right. Very narrow, extremely narrow. 
I once had an unbelieving friend who loved to, well, I still, he's still a friend, uh, who loved to discuss theology with me. And uh, he once told me that I was so narrow-minded I could look down a Coke bottle with both eyes. Uh, the, but I strive to only be as narrow-minded as Jesus and Scripture. Uh, so Jesus when then comes to the invitation, the climax of the message, and he calls for this decision, this choice. And he says there's few that find this narrow gate. And uh, one reason that it's difficult to find among several is it because standing in front of these two gates, as, as you stand at these crossroads, are false prophets uh, doing everything in their, they can in their power to push you the wrong way. They're, they are there obscuring the narrow gate, uh, waving people on like some spiritual traffic cop uh, to the broad road that leads to destruction. And so Jesus says, having given you the invitation, I'm going to have to warn you too. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 15. Uh, he must warn us of false prophets. So it says, beware of the false prophets. They stand in the midst of the crossroads, trying their best to obscure the narrow way and to push men towards the broad way. And they are highly successful. And now in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, I want to outline this passage very simply with only two points. They say... When I went to seminary, that was always a the wrong thing to do. You needed three points in an illustration, you know. But this is uh, uh, two points. That's it. Uh, his warning and our watching. Uh, so let's begin with his warning. We'll look at this for the remaining of our time today. Verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus is very clear here. He doesn't leave any doubt in our minds about whom he is speaking. We know he's talking about false prophets. Now, this is not an uncommon thing in the Bible. For example, if you go back to the Pentateuch, Moses records in Deuteronomy 13, God's instruction about false prophets in the earliest times of his redemptive history. So I'd like us to look at it for a moment. Turn in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy 13. Verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. These are God's instructions to Israel on what to do with a false prophet. He says, verse 1, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, <clears throat> saying, let's go, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. So God says false prophets are so dangerous that if one shows up, kill him. In, Israel, in, in, in Isaiah, 
30, verses 9 and 10, God was so disgusted with Israel, that's here, here's how he described them. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. In other words, God says that they're so corrupt and sinful, they would rather they they will desire to hear false, deceitful illusions rather than the truth. There's always a market for false prophets because people don't want to hear the truth. So there's always a hearing for them. Jeremiah repeatedly over and over again, starting in chapter 5 and running all the way through chapter 23, marks out and describes the false prophets giving warning after warning after warning about them. And you come to the New Testament and beginning here in our text, and again in chapter 24, Jesus warns about false prophets in Matthew 24, 11. He says that during the last days, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. There's that word many again. Uh, there are many false prophets who deceive many people and many will go on that road and many will wind up at the final judgment saying, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. And he'll say, I don't know any of you. Depart from my presence. And so the false prophets come to the same end that they led, that those who they misled go to. Matthew 24, 24 says, For false Christ and false prophets will also arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. False Christ, that's this word right here, pseudo-Christos. Uh, they are those who try to present themselves as if they are Christ themself, uh, himself. Uh, they're shams, they're phonies, they're liars. Uh, Paul warned in Romans 16, 17 and 18, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And Paul told Timothy that they teach doctrines of demons. And Peter said they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And because they're so prevalent, the Apostle John tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so the Bible warns us over and over and over again about false prophets. They're going to be around. They've, all, they've been around since the Garden of Eden. Uh, and until Jesus comes back, they're still going to be here. In fact, Paul warned the Ephesian elders about them in Acts 20, 29 to 31, didn't he? He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, but from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So as I said, there will always be a large market for false teachers because people want to hear what makes them feel good rather than the truth. Uh, people prefer to hear what's pleasant, even if it's false and dangerous, over that which is unpleasant and unflattering, even if it's true and helpful. I mean, why do you think Joel Osteen has such a large following? Uh, 
because he tickles the ears of his listeners. He never talks about personal sin or God's wrath abiding on those who reject Christ. My son-in-law, who's a pastor, uh, once told me he wishes that Osteen would just market himself as a motivational speaker and not a pastor uh, because he's anything but a true pastor. Uh, but people prefer to hear that which makes them feel good about themselves rather than hearing the truth that hurts but brings true spiritual healing to the soul. Now, as we study this matter, I want to break this down into four parts that will help you understand Jesus' warning here in verse 15. Uh, we'll look at the definition of a false prophet, the danger of false prophets, the deception of false prophets, and the damnation of false prophets. Uh, let's begin with the definition of a false prophet. What is a false prophet? What are, who are we really dealing with in this verse? Well, ever since the fall of man, it, has, it is apparent that man is hopelessly lost. Uh, man turns his back on the true living God and runs away to dead false gods. And there's no one among them who can turn them around, for no human man has within himself that kind of resource. Uh, and so God had to pick out certain people, redeem them, and send them to mankind to represent him and present his message to man. They were and are his prophets. And you find in both the Old Testament and New Testament that a true prophet was known by two things. He had a divine commission and he had a divine message. He was called by God and he was given his content by God. He gave God's message and he was God's man. A true prophet was God's voice to man. For example, if you go back to Exodus 4, you find that Yahweh is calling uh, Moses out of the burning bush to become his prophet and representative to free the nation of Israel from Egypt. And Moses says, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And Yahweh tells him, who made man's mouth or who made him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And so Moses is commissioned by God and assured that God would give him the content of God's message that constituted the role of a prophet. Moses was God's man who spoke God's message. But no sooner did God send his true prophets to speak the true message, to be his true shepherds, to draw the wayward sheep back to God, than Satan began to counterfeit, as he always does. And as you study the Old Testament, you find over and over and over again that there are false prophets misleading the people. For example, in Jeremiah 14, 14, it says, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false division, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. The most dangerous characteristic of false prophets is that they claim to be from God and speak on his behalf. But God said, I didn't commission them, and I didn't give them the message. Right. 
There was none of them were killed. And yet, after Babylon came and took, you know, Nebuchadnezzar took, they still didn't follow Jeremiah, even they took him out of prison and put him in the guardhouse. Yeah. They still didn't follow his God's word for them to stay. They went to Egypt. Yep. Yep. And he said, if you stay, you'll be blessed. If you don't, yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah 5, 31, God told Jeremiah, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And then he said these words, and the people love it so. The priests are not appointed by God. They appoint themselves to their position and the people love listening to them because they tell them what they want to hear. It's no different than what Paul said to Timothy about the people in the last days who will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. In continuing on in Jeremiah 23, God really castigates these false prophets. Verse 14, also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one is turned back from his wickedness. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination and from the not from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 21. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. In Zechariah 11, there's a picture of a false shepherd that's so vivid, I have to read it to you. Listen to this. Zechariah 11:16. For behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Can you imagine a shepherd that doesn't bother to go find a lamb that gets lost? Imagine the kind of shepherd he'd be. He'd be a shepherd who eats the fat of sheep. He actually is the enemy of the sheep who devours him. And the idea of tearing off their hooves means that he literally rips the hooves apart to get every little last morsel of meat on that frame. What kind of shepherd is that? And then God, verse 17, God says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. In other words, God is going to bring judgment on that shepherd. Now let me explain that this shepherd that God is speaking of here is a picture of the future Antichrist, who is the epitome of all false prophets. He cares nothing for the sheep. He masquerades as if he were Christ and representing Christ and the and, and the fact is he rips and tears and shreds the flock. The scribes and Pharisees were classic examples of this. Frankly, it's no wonder that they crucified Jesus because he unmasked them so mercilessly. They were the ones who paraded around as if they were godly uh, and righteous, but in fact they were ravenous wolves and they were self-seeking and self-serving and they used the people to gain their own ends. Uh, in John 8, Jesus said directly to them, Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because you cannot, it is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. 
He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. You ever wonder why Jesus got himself in trouble with them when they said those words directly to him all the time? But someday, if the Lord doesn't return first, we're going to get to chapter 23 in Matthew, in which uh, Jesus repeatedly called them hypocrites and blind guides. So there's no doubt that he saw them as false prophets. So uh, there they are with all of their supposed religiosity, making sure they filled out every minute aspect of the law, acting like they were the most religious of all people. And yet Jesus says, you're false prophets. Vance Havner had an interesting statement about them. He says, you can dot all your I's and cross all your T's and still spell the word wrong. Uh, if I can play off of that, you can keep all the smallest letters and strokes of the law and still not spell Jesus. Uh, that's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. They were very religious, but they were damning men to perdition. So, well, our time is up, and I have to stop right there. Any, uh, any comments or questions on this portion yet? Yes. Yes, they are. They're being led astray. They they prey on the poor and the weak. Um, I've shared before, and I'm not going to get into it now. Uh, that. Uh, that little story in Luke 15, 16 about the widow's might. She wasn't doing that because she thought she was, she thought she was being faithful to God. But she was doing it because the scribes and Pharisees, who just before that Jesus, they devour widows' houses because they were putting such burdens on people to give. She's giving away her last thing, thinking she's earning credit with God. And she wasn't. Jesus so. said she would be remembered, and she's in all four Gospels. She's in all four Gospels. So, All right. Our time is up, and uh, we need to close with prayer and go our way. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's precious to us. It's a, an unfathomable wealth of, of divine mm -hmm. wisdom. We pray that we would apply the things that we study in it to our lives. Lord, I pray that none of us would ever fall prey to a false prophet. Lord, it's so easy to do. Lord, I pray now as we go into the worship service that you would uh, just uh, have our hearts set on praising you, praising Christ for all that he accomplished on our behalf. And that we, you would be glorified and honored in all that we do and say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.